Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Trading in the financial markets involves a risk of loss. Podcast episodes and other content produced by Chat with Traders are for informational or educational purposes only and do not constitute trading or investment recommendations or advice. It took three tries to find it. And then I did like a surprise visit, you know, it's like unannounced. And uh, one of the execs came out and was really angry. And yeah, I documented it, filmed it. I had a, a camera on my shirt turned out to be like a Hollywood set. You know, it's just exactly what I imagined. It was a, it was a scam uh, because I had to pose as an investor and uh, NASDAQ companies, they're supposed to let you in as a tour or to check out the company. They can't just be like, you know, they, they actually had guns and stuff, you know, so like, hmm. I don't know if it was loaded. You know, this is Colombia. You know what I mean? Markets, speculation and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast. Hey there, traders. Listeners, welcome to the Chat with Traders podcast with Ian Cox as our host, and I'm Tessa Dow, co-host and producer of the show. I'm really happy to spend some time with you here, and I hope you're doing well, mentally, physically, emotionally. By the way, if you haven't listened to the last episode on brain and body health, make sure you tune into that episode 256. There are really good reminders and food for thought to help contribute to peak performance for trading. As always, thank you for tuning in. And now let's focus on today's episode 257. I'm thrilled to introduce David Capablanca. You may know him as the host of the Friendly Bear podcast. Being deep in debt after finishing architecture school, David realized that he wanted an alternative career with independence, freedom, and potential for higher earnings. From what I've learned about architects in general is that they are artistic, imaginative, but also logical and investigative in nature. So it's no surprise that you'll hear elements of these traits come through in David's trading approach. He's naturally drawn to a contrarian psychology and zeroed in on short selling as his trading of choice. The challenges of uncovering scams through a deep dive into company fundamentals the history of founders, and visiting company headquarters overseas on a quest to find clues were the kinds of things that energized David and brought his trading approach to a whole other level. Although he's no longer in architecture, you can say he became the architect of his own trading destiny. Let's allow David to take us on a short adventure with him today, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, we're so pleased to present David Capablanca from the City of Angels. All right. I'd like to welcome David Capablanca, host of the Friendly Bear podcast, to chat with traders. Welcome, David. Yeah, Ian, how are you doing? Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. So curious, are bears unfairly characterized as being vicious creatures? I think so. As we can tell, there's a new movie out. Um, and yeah, that's exactly what they they're portraying in the movie. However, you're you're much more you're much friendlier, and you'd like to uh, share with us a little bit about short selling today. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I I am the friendly bear. I like to have conversations with the other side and just be friendly in general. You know, 
So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, give us a little bit about your uh, background before you uh, got into trading. Okay, a little background. So I came into trading late in the game for uh, in my 30s. And uh, I have a background in architecture. I spent all of uh, my 20s in the architecture field in college for architecture, undergraduate and graduate. And I was focused solely on becoming the best architect I can be. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed school of architecture school and just excelling in the creative imaginative field of uh, architecture and creating and design and everything about it and everything that came with it as far as travel and culture and everything. So I was really good at that. However, when I finished undergraduate and then graduate school, which is like altogether, it's almost 10 years of, of, of school. Six months after you graduate, you're hit with uh, with the bills, the student loan bills and all that. So I was um, so uh, enamored with architecture and just loved it so much. I just didn't even consider like the financial implications because I was um, I was basically financially illiterate, you know, just like uh, a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues were, you know, are even now. So I didn't, you know, both of my parents uh, are immigrants. They came here to the United States and I'm from Miami originally. They are doing their best. You know, they both have degrees. They both have, uh, my dad's a mechanical engineer. My mom's a, a teacher and the, my mom has a master's. So like the only th- way I knew was to just go to school, do the best you can in school. And then that's everything else is going to figure itself out. But in, in the middle of all that, I was just financially illiterate. So like I got myself caught up in all these student loans. And then when I graduated, I was six months later, it hits you. And I was like, okay, now you try to figure it out, like how much you're making how much you, you know you owe and like how much time is it going to take to pay it off i'm going to be in my late 50s by the time i pay this off with the with the the way architecture is and i won't be able to design what i want to design because i'm going to be working for someone else doing what i don't like to pay the bills until i pay the finish paying the bills so trading came along you know so uh you know someone mentioned to me a long time ago what i used to be caught up with like fantasy baseball i loved fantasy baseball and uh, someone told I would I would do very well with fantasy baseball. And there's a whole, we can go on another topic. That's a whole nother podcast. But uh, one of my friends told me at the time, uh, he told me, man, David, if you were to put this much energy and stuff into stocks, you'd be like a millionaire. And that didn't I didn't understand what he said. But then like one later on in the future, after graduate school and architecture and all this, I, you know, I started to see these YouTube ads popping up about stocks and trading. And then it, it occurred to me a flashback happened. I was like, okay, so my friend that told me about the stats and fantasy baseball and all this, maybe I should give this a shot. Maybe this is like something that you you, you treat as serious, just like I treated architecture serious and went to school for it and put countless hours to design everything I was designing and to learn the computer programs, to learn all the intricate details of, of art and history and design and all these tools and algorithms. There's actually algorithms in architecture that come up with um, design forms, considering all the forces around that affect the building, like sunlight and wind and nature, et cetera, culture. So I don't know. So everything made sense to me. Okay. So if I, if I can do this stock thing and just keep it treated seriously, uh, you know, I can make something out of it. And that's what, what was my approach. I wasn't expecting to make money right away. Um, did you study before making any significant trades or or did you just yes. jump in and learn on the fly? No, no, no. I, I studied for three years. I didn't make any money for three years. Uh, so what what kind of books did you read, um, if any? Or did you just watch videos? I watched videos, uh, about 10,000 hours of videos. And I started with a $2,000 account. And um, yeah, I didn't make any money off from 2016 to 2000, February 2020. So yeah, just studying all the videos, there, that course that I signed up for had about 10,000 hours of stuff. And to me, that was enough foundational material. And it was, you know, here and there, there's some rabbit holes you can go to. And the thing is, is that the whole thing, it, it was all short selling pump and dumps. These are old pump and dump patterns from the early 2010s that I was studying over and over OTC, over the counter stock pump and dumps, paid pump and dumps. All this. Then you go into the rabbit hole studying the history of pump and dumps, like the Wolf of Wall Street. I remember the Wolf of Wall Street movie came out at the time. But what attracted you specifically to short selling? Uh, When you first got into the markets, that was you were studying it uh, during the gentle bull markets of 2016, 17, 18 and so forth. Is that correct? 
Yes, exactly. And I wasn't, I, I didn't make a dime. I was uh, tutoring on the side. I left architecture at this point. I was doing it very minimally. I was tutoring architecture just to make m- enough money to pay my rent. And then just, I just studied nonstop everything. So I decided early on, just focus on short selling. So there was like two in the courses I was, I was taking. There was two very successful short sellers that started with the amount, the amount of money I started with just a couple thousand. And uh, I just followed what they had to say. What, as far as like, their, their teachings and the way the, the risk management, their patterns, I just followed it. and to learn, I didn't make any money at all. So like, and I just decided, you know, I'm just going to stick with short selling. Short selling but, is enough for me. Uh-huh. Why is that? What, what was it specific about short selling that attracted you? And so often we end up hearing about people making lots of money being long. That's a good question because, you know, short selling, it takes more capital to even do it properly. And I didn't have much money. You know, margin account is $2,000. So I started shorting with a $2,000 account, just a couple shares, just to, because I knew that's what I was going to do. And I was like, you know what, eventually I'm going to find some, get some money together and do it the right way, but I need to learn. So I learned by trading the, the smallest amount of shares. And those two short sellers that I mentioned, they were primarily short. And I realized, um, I was like, why, you know, why do they even go long? Just stick to shorting, you know? So I, I decided that. And also, I guess my personality, I have thick skin, you know, I'm, I'm just like, I always liked uh, the characters, like even Batman's considered like the dark knight, right? He's not just like the knight. He's not the white knight. He's the dark knight or like the characters, uh, the, the villains even, or I don't know. I'm not, not to say I'm a villain, but I, I felt, I, I always liked it. I wasn't, it was intrigued, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I liked being on the other side of the, of the of the the contrarian, I really embrace the contrarian view, and to the point of being a short seller contrarian. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think of uh, shorting stocks because they're overvalued, or the charts show them as being overbought. Maybe they missed earnings estimates, and some short uh, because they want to uncover outright frauds. It, did you short stocks on using those different methodologies, or did you zero in? on a particular type of short? So at first, what attracted me right away was like the frauds. I was like, well, I didn't remember, I didn't know anything about finance or markets or stocks. What made sense to me was when someone explained it to me, like an elevator pitch. It's like, hey, there's this character in here. He wants, he's greedy. He wants to, he's, he's doing drugs or whatever. And just wants to, like Wolf of Wall Street and wants to pump this stock. He has a ton of shares and he's going to dump it. And like, he gets away with it. You know, the SEC doesn't have enough people to monitor this stuff. So we as short sellers got to come in there and and uh, bring balance to the market in that way. So that, that made sense to me. And that's how I got started. But then, you know, you study and you work on patterns and you have this, I have a competitive drive where like, I just want to improve all the time. And I just, I just loved it. Just like I approached like with architecture. At first I, I decided to do architecture because I liked baseball stadiums, you know, growing up. And then like it becomes after like six months or eight months of architecture, I, I decided after being reading up on like artists and architects and materials and seeing buildings from around the world, like pictures of them. And then you move away from that and you, you get uh, obsessed with it in a good way. That's what happened with me with short selling. I was like, OK, so I just decided to just focus on short selling. So after the pump and dumps, I decided, you know, there's all types of shorting I could do. So I started mm-hmm. with the OTCs, the, the OTCs. I saw everything as a pump and dump. Not only the, the ones that are specific pump and dump patterns that I learned to start with, but then I started looking into like, okay, what other patterns that are similar to pump and dumps, that pump and dump over a smaller time frame, that pump and dump because of a Twitter, someone on Twitter is pumping it. Like, who are these Twitter guys? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the OTC market. Uh, did you exclusively focus in on that market or did you also short stocks on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and others? Well, to start, I started with the OTCs because the OTCs is a slower market and the competition there is less. So I saw myself early on, this was just clear to me that like I want to compete against against people that are not 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 sophisticated, let's just say. And uh, the OTC market is, is like that. And I saw immediately after it clicked. It's like, okay, there's no algorithms trading here. There's no big hedge funds trading here. Uh, there's none of these sophisticated players in the OTCs. There's just like Wolf of Wall Street kind of stuff going on. So I started with that. And then eventually you graduate from that. You know, so I saw that as like the minor leagues. And then I graduated. And then now 
you know, the NASDAQs also, and even New York Stock Exchange recently, the past year or so, it's just rampant with all this like chaos. And, uh, you know, so there's pump and dumps everywhere every single day. So like, it's just run amok because uh, ever since all these newer traders came in post 2020, there's a lot of opportunity on the short side. Did you research the stocks to see how much institutional ownership they had and would make a decision possibly not to short a stock if it, if too many institutions were in the, in the stock? This is a recent thing that, that uh, I've started doing. Yeah. The past year and a half or so since I advanced my trading, you know, now I, I, I have all this, uh, journaling and extensive data tracking that like, I see the stuff more clearly. So, you know, you're constantly trading. My trading is improving. And yeah, recently I started to consider that a lot. Institutional ownership. Uh, if there's institutional ownership present in a, in a NASDAQ or New York stock exchange stock, they have algorithms and these algorithms, they're, they're designed to buy around the VWAP for their clients at certain levels and stocks, they will, they won't break down as easily. So if I'm short something and it's not breaking down, that gets really annoying and frustrating. And that can eventually squeeze, you know, because if I'm feeling a certain way, a lot of short sellers are feeling that way. You know, I like to think of like a, a, the crowd. It's like if you go to a, a sports event, when someone yells uh, or is happy, everybody's happy. So like 90% of the, it's like that with short sellers. So whenever I see a trade, I'm like, okay, uh, this is like a baseball. If I'm feeling a certain way, I imagine like a baseball stadium or basketball arena of people like me feeling a certain way. So if I'm getting squeezed or feeling like I'm going to get squeezed, I'm, that is amplified. All the short sellers, for the most part, in general, are feeling that way. And that's an indicator for me to get out. And I noticed like with high institutional ownership, it's uh, it's designed for pe- for the short sellers to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Early on, I mean, you did a lot of studying before you got into the market uh, seriously. Uh, what were some of your early weaknesses encountered with psychology strategies you used and risk management? That's an excellent question. So early on, um, I guess patience for the right plays, being selective. I think we all as human beings are work on that constantly until a certain level. I think I, I've, I've started to get you always got to improve on discipline, no matter how disciplined you are, because you you have that human element inside you to to make errors. So, yeah, just just that and noticing that right away and noticing there's things in my life that I have to clean up. Um, I had to get I had to clean up my whole life outside of trading before I really started to tra- take trading seriously, because, uh, for example, I used to go out a lot, you know, being from Miami, you know, South Beach is always like all the kids, all the teenagers or what do you call it? 20 year olds they all hit up South Beach. I had to stop doing that right away. So I noticed like to be successful at this, I'm going to have to change my whole lifestyle. I stopped partying. I gave up alcohol. I haven't drank alcohol since uh, 2020, since I started to get profitable and excel. Um, I had to give up a lot of uh, toxic people in my life. You know, I had to change my friends, my surroundings. Um, I had to constantly just tweak my lifestyle. So it fits, it, it fits for trading to for me to excel at trading, to reach my full potential at trading. That's what I realized early on. And it was just a constant battle uh, to fix things. Like, for example, here in the West Coast, I don't know where you guys are. Are you guys in the West Coast? Yeah, we're in Seattle. Oh, Seattle. So yeah, in the West Coast, the market opens at 6.30 a.m. And in 2020, when I started, uh, when I started trading like for real, um, the market, I saw a lot of pre-market opportunity of all these COVID stocks that would fly up in the pre-market and then fade all day long. Now, pre-market in the West Coast is 1 a.m. So I, and then the regular hours is 6.30 a.m. And I remember I had a car at the time and the car was giving me a problem because like I had to, I was street parking because street parking at 6.30, you had to move it once Tuesday, Thursday, another day is Wednesday, Friday. And it was a disaster. And on top of that, you know, you got LA traffic, you have parking, not only parking spots, but parking everywhere and park parking is an extra expense at where you live. So I decided, okay, I had to really think about this. Like, you know what? I got to get rid of my car. And if I get rid of my car, LA doesn't have good public transportation. They don't have a sophisticated subway system like New York or something, but they do have a subway in downtown LA. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to, my lease is ending. I'm going to have to move to downtown LA. I'm going to have to change my whole lifestyle because I want to make this trading thing. I, I, I need to, I have to make this work. This is my decision. This is like, uh, I decided like Hernan Cortez burning the boats. 
So you mentioned that you like to focus in on frauds. Uh, have you heard of short selling groups like Hindenburg Research and perhaps had a chance to read any these short uh, reports? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, starting out when I was shorting the OTCs, there was this company called PRED, Predictive Technology. It was a, a fraud that was, or, you know, I hate to use the word fraud. You know, you got to be careful saying the word fraud. But, you know, it was um, it was a pump and dump that was sent out paid disclaimers and paid emails and paid text messages, campaigns to pump the stock. And it was pumping forever. And Nate Hindenburg Research, he's like, world famous now he's he was lesser known back then i want i don't want to say starting out but he would uh he would also be on the same um message boards as me starting out and i would call this is me brand new almost like i was studying and putting in work but i would uh, go on the message boards talking and um talking about this this company saying it, it's it's a scam and then nate would come in there and say the same thing and we would talk on on uh twitter now you know i was like and then nate like he really came through with the with the crazy report on PRED, hired an investigator in Colombia, and they found the, the whole the the whole scam. Or like it was an, actually not Colombia. It was another another place. But he hired another investigator. He had a whole process for that. And I had a, a small relationship with Nate, but to see his growth, yeah. So ever since then he um that was one of his best reports. But ever since then he's grown tremendously. And now it's Hindenburg research everybody knows. But that was that must have been 2019 where he was in a short amount of time. So see, like trading, if you do things right in a short amount of time, you can have a, a massive amount of success. It's like really is like a, a, a front, like one of the frontiers, you know, one of the American frontiers. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your own investigation of a cannabis company called Flora Growth. So, so Ian, I think um, you mentioned off the podcast you went to Bucaramanga. Columbia, yes. they do like parasailing over there. And uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, I did go to Bucaramanga and Bucaramanga is a city in Colombia in the middle of nowhere that's known for parasailing and some outdoor activities. But I was there to investigate a, a marijuana cultivation facility that was supposed to be like world changing and this new, you know, they're going to, this company for growth is going to export marijuana all over the world for six cents a gram. And it's going to change the whole marijuana industry this little tiny company in the middle of nowhere. So um, I, the same thing with predictive technology, the one I mentioned with Nate and Hindenburg, they sent out text message campaigns, email campaigns. That's how I got on my radar. And then I just looked into it. You know, one thing that graduate school and architecture taught me was to do how to do research. So I have a really rigorous way to do research that rigorous, I guess, you know, skill to do a really good skill that graduate school taught me and like how to do research extensively. So I did a lot of research on Flora Growth. I found out everything about the company with uh, the, the backers in it, the insiders, their track record, the history. I found like a photo of one of the insiders with the taking a, a like a selfie photo with Jordan Belfort back in the day and like swindling. He was part of many pump and dumps. So like you just go down these rabbit holes and you discover all this dirt 
And I was in a unique position where I was in Puerto Rico trading out of an office there. And, uh, you know, I met up with a, another short seller that does uh, short reports and he has a lot of resources. So I told him everything about it and we both did a lot of research on it. And then I, I, I volunteered. I said, you know what? I, I speak Spanish and I, I love traveling. So this is a really good excuse to travel. So I went to Bucaramanga on a flight from Puerto Rico, direct flight. I uh, landed in, in the Bucaramanga airport. It's, uh, in, it's in the mountains. I took a, a motor taxi to a hostel. I, I wanted to, to stay. One thing I, I like to do is stay with the locals and see how it is. I can ask a lot of questions. So I stayed in a hostel and I asked everybody where this cultivation facility was. And I had the coordinates pretty much. So anyway, people are trying to convince me to do parasailing. And I was like, you know what? Uh, I just want to, I just want to find this. I'll do that next time. <laughs> and, uh, the morning we went straight to the cultivation facility. It was, it was really hard to find, you know, the thing is with Bucaramanga when in the mountains, when the sun sets, there's no more light, you know, there's no street lamps, there's no electricity, there's no Wi-Fi. It's all dark. So like we had to really coordinate. It took three tries to find it and then finally found it. And one of the, one of the, I did like a surprise visit, you know, it's like unannounced. And uh, one of the execs came out and was really angry and yeah, I documented it, filmed it. I had a, a camera on my shirt, like a hidden camera. And um, yeah, he documented everything and it, it turned out to be like a Hollywood set. You know, it's just exactly what I imagined. It's a Hollywood set, probably a hundred feet by a hundred feet with the floor growth sign and uh, probably plastic trees. I didn't go as really close enough, but it was, it was just a, it was it was a scam. It was a scam. And, uh, you know, once we published the report, it, it was at the all time highs when I when I the day I, I was at the site it was all time highs. And then when I came back uh, because I had to pose as an investor that and the Nasdaq companies, they're supposed to let you in to uh, as a tour or to check out the company. They can't just be like deny you. And uh, I said I was an investor. You know, I'd like to check out the property and check out the the plants. And they just got really angry and you know they, they actually had guns and stuff you know so like hmm. i don't know if it was loaded you know this is columbia you know what i mean right right um you mentioned that the nasdaq uh has rules requiring uh that investors have some access to physical facilities is that correct that's correct that's correct and you know uh -huh. a lot of a lot of these scams they they don't they locate them outside of the country you know, the actual physical stuff, because like people can't can't go there and see for themselves. And you see this a lot with Chinese companies. There's a really good documentary called The China Hustle. Um, it's a famous Mark Cuban uh, is one is one of the people that backed it up financially to do the, the, the documentary. And you see a lot of Chinese companies. They have their the actual company in China, but they formed the entity and everything in the Cayman Islands. And then they listed on the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq. Which is crazy. Like, how can they list it? The New York Stock Exchange is like a prestigious exchange, and Nasdaq is, is these are listed, and you got all these like scams from China listing, and you, you can't like, for example, me, I would love to go visit them physically, but this is China, and China is like locked down during COVID. You can't even go. So like, these stocks of Chinese Chinese stocks are flying like cra at crazy levels, and they're not being shut down because like no one can go there and really investigate. Uh, so is the primary way uh, that you find possible scams is to sign up for these kind of quote newsletters or pump and dump type outfits that you've uh, that you found earlier and just wait for them to promote a particular stock? Is that the main way you find these? That's one way, you know, that's mm -hmm. one one way. And, you know, it's it's crazy today. Uh, I sent a message to my friends. I said, nobody texts me only only. Nobody ever sends me any text. No one loves me except the pumpers. You know, I get <laughs> I get a lot of text messages. So I yeah, I, so you I reverse engineered it, right? So like I googled, for example, um stock tips or get rich quick stock tips or all this this kind of language that that people use that want to that are desperate and then, you know, that mention stock in there, the keywords, and you get these landing pages of email lists. So yeah, I, I subscribe to them and I gladly put my phone number there and they send mm -hmm. me text messages. And you can see in the text message, it says a paid disclaimer. Uh, we're compensated this amount of money, this amount of money for this amount of days. They give you their game plan because, you know, that's them covering themselves. So I think 
it's more or less legal for them to do it as long as they disclaim it in the bottom and fine print. And um, yeah, that's that's one way to find it. You know, I have other other things I look for too, like um, underwriters that are sketchy. I have a whole list of them. Um, red flags that pop up with the Twitter people, the same Twitter, like the, for example, the, the Twitter people that got uh, arrested and get shut down by the SEC, this guy, the whole group, I don't, you know, I don't even have to mention them. Everybody knows who they are. I I was on them for the longest time. I had a, I had a, like, like a bot on discord every, you know, there's a chat chat program called discord. You mm-hmm. could put bots and in the pro in the discord. And I had all these pumpers, the bots on their tweets. So every time they tweeted, I got a notification and then I was shorted. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Uh, More or less. Yeah. Uh, so when you went down to Columbia, uh, were you short uh, Flora Growth uh, before you got there or did you short it right after you found it? Found That's it? a good question. So so the thing is, I, I use a lot of technical indications myself. So I studied everything. That's one thing I got like from architecture. As an architect, you got to know a, a little bit about everything. It's like a conductor of a symphony, like a composer. So I, so the stock was too strong. So like it was started out like a $3 IPO. And then when I was in Columbia, it was like, it's in the upper teens. And then like when I was in with the altercation with the, one of the execs at the site that we it reached the twenties. So the stock was too strong to short it, but I knew, you know, it's, it's the insider is a lock. They're doing this for, it's a lockup play. So once the, you know, they're running it up for the lockup. Then once they it unlock the shares get unlocked, they're going to start to, to sell. And also, you know, there's a certain amount of extension I look for as part of my criteria uh, and volume fade as you know, looking at daily candles, et cetera, to determine what my entry is going to be. And at that point, that's the, it was as strong as ever, you know. And it was uh, no, I didn't short it like before I went, but I knew the end is near. The end is nigh. So because like, you know, it's like when you have that much strength in a stock, the way it was going parabolic over a period of days, you know, the, the, the blow off top is set in eventually, you know. So the blow off top, once it once I got out from the site from the site and I flew back to Puerto Rico, it already cracked. And then once it cracked, I, I put my short in and, you know, so and I shorted it ahead of. A, yeah. So I shorted ahead of the big uh, announcement of the report as well. So how difficult is it to find uh, shares available to short? And uh, how often do do the borrowing fees, um, you know, how much do they vary? And do they uh, are they significant enough to make you uh, not short a particular stock? Yeah. So so the borrow fee. So for flora growth, it was doable. There was there was shares available to short. It was it was OK. Now, it all depends on float. If it's a micro float, a low float, you know, for example, for me, I look for 3 million float and up 5 million float to 10 million float. I like 10 to 20 million float is like, it's almost headache free for me. If I, if I, if I do everything I'm like, I'm supposed to do. So it depends on flow. So if something is low float, 3 million float or less, or micro flow, less than a million uh, shares, then yeah, borrows are going to be highly likely to be very expensive and almost not worth it because the risk reward is just not there because you can anybody can squeeze a, a low float, a 600,000 share float, you know, just one or two players. And there's a lot of nefarious people in the stock market. We, You know, that's one thing I realized right away almost instantly is like we got a lot of there's a lot of greedy, smart people in the market that are crooked. So like someone can can actually take up the float, you know, and they don't they don't even have to report. Uh, if they if they get rid of it the same day, they don't have to report as an insider buy because they didn't hold it overnight. But if they hold overnight, then it becomes tricky. Then they have to report to the SEC. And, you know, there's a lot of games being played with that. But like, yeah, so it's, it's just not worth it to, to short a really low float or micro float stock less than three million, less than two million, because the borrow costs are going to be astronomical. The locate cost to locate the share is going to be it's going to be a lot. And it's going to likely to squeeze, you know, against you tremendously. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a, a range of uh, interest rates that um, uh, borrowers have to pay annually? Uh, shorting, say, a stock maybe on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ versus some of these small float uh, stocks um, on the bulletin board that you short. What what kind of what typically can we expect? 
Okay, that's a good question. So what I mentioned was locate costs. So in order to get the shares these days, you have to have a certain broker, a short selling specific broker, and you have to locate the shares. You have to request it on their platform. I use a platform called DAS. You locate the shares. That that costs money. And so that, and they change prices intraday. Now that's the borrow cost to swing it. That's a separate cost. So on, you have an additional cost of the borrow cost. And these days in a bear market or a bearish market with more short sellers involved, it's all based on supply and demand. So the more short sellers uh, that want it, the more expensive it's going to be. And for example, I use interactive brokers just to monitor the borrow costs because these brokers, a lot of times they don't even have that accessible. You have to call them up and ask, what are what is the borrow cost? So you're almost shorting it blind. So like my borrow costs, I have a rule like an interactive brokers. If I see a 200% or more borrow, borrow fee percentage, uh, I just, I don't short it because that indicates the demand for that short. It's almost like an intraday short interest indicator, you know, uh, watching that fee rate. And, you know, I don't do the, 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 the to calculate it. There's a calculation there. You can calculate how much you're going to pay per day or per year or per month. But I just, you know, and and I used to do that. But now what I do is I just make a flat rule, you know, because trading is very complicated. You got so much to do that I just make a rule. I said, oh, if it's over 200% fee rate on interactive brokers, I'm just, uh, I'm going to try my best not to short it. Or I'll short it only early in the day, you know, or certain time periods in the day. And after 11 a.m. Eastern, I don't put on a new trade. You know, I leave it alone. Hmm. Uh, so does the, uh, the interest rate, um, that is charged to short a stock. Does that change day after day? So if you enter a position and you say, Hey, that, uh, this short uh, interest rate is seems reasonable. And then a day or two later, they jack it up on you. Is that, does that happen? And how often, you know, when I first started, uh, in 2020 and 2021, it used to be like that. It used to be a lot slower, like the interest rate, the borrow fee rate would go up very gradually over a slower period of time. Now it's like two or three times per day they update it. And, uh, you know, I have multiple brokers. So I have like a Slack uh, and I chat with my broker. I ask them specifically, what's the borrow rate? What's the borrow rate? And I compare uh, the borrow rates with which each broker is. Okay, this broker said 100%. This one said 150%. Interactive broker says 200%. Now I got to feel. And then like I'll, I'll re-ask the question later in the day. And yeah, sometimes it'll go from like, like a hundred percent or let's say 50% or whatever. And it'll go to like a thousand percent, you know, it will go 500, 600, it, it increased like tremendously. And so like that indicates, and a lot of times that'll be before the squeeze. So that's why I ask um, a few times, because if I'm in a trade, I'll, I'll ask, and I'm concerned that the short squeeze is forming on the chart. If it's consolidating at a strong level, um, I'll ask the broker, I'll keep asking them. And then like, if I see, for example, once last year, I remember I shorted a stock, I forgot the ticker, but it, let's say it was like a 20% fee rate. Then all of a sudden I, I asked the broker and he, he said 200%. And I checked IB, all of a sudden it went to 400%. And I got out of the trade and the trade uh, about an hour later, it had a massive squeeze. So that indicates like shorts, the demand for the short is 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 compiling, you know? And it's 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 like a, it's going to combust, you know, so eventually. So it's a sign. It's a, it's an indicator in a way. Mm -hmm. How often did you find scams in the recent bull market and have they decreased materially in the current bear market? You know, uh, this is this is the scam thing is is a problem. You know, for example, for, I have a whole list of them right here. Uh, you can't see it, but like, I have a paid pump list. There's probably like 30 of them there. There's a Chinese pump list. There's probably about 20 of them there, you know, so. And that's just what I'm focusing on. But uh, there's a lot of scams in the in the listed in listed land, especially with uh, small caps. And you know, it's just that's just the way it is. You know, it's it's uh, the the mark the SEC doesn't have enough energy or doesn't have enough manpower to deal with it. And you know, it's it's a big inefficiency. And now we have more people in the market than more than ever because of Robinhood and 2020 and like everybody you know, knows about trading now. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot, a lot of chaos, you know, and that's just, it's just mm -hmm. part of it. Uh, did you short any of the meme stocks during their periodic pumps? 
So I, I did. And actually, I sh- actually, I shorted the sympathies for the most part. The sympathy plays are usually easier plays, easier setups than the actual head. They call it the head of the snake. The What's that? The- what, what is a sympathy play? A, a sympathy play is something that follows like the shiny object that everybody's going for. Like, let's say GME, GameStop. Mm-hmm. And the sympathy play, I remember there was a, a stock called SLGG. It's a gaming company in the small cap land. It was probably trading at $2. Yeah, I think it was like $2. And all of a sudden, you know, since it's a gaming company, it's in the same sector and it's a cheaper stock than GME. GME is, a, let's say, is at $200. People are looking for something like GME, GameStop. So they go for SLGG. And SLGG at the time, Brian Cohen bought uh, GameStop. You know, and he posted something on Twitter, like a frog emoji and an ice cream emoji, a frog and an ice cream. And at the time, this is this is the crazy market of 2021. It was insane. And me coming in with like a logical mindset of like architecture and stuff. This was like, oh, this is like the weakest thing ever. No one, you know, who's going to buy that ice cream emoji and a frog emoji. And then so people, the crowd came up with a, all over the message board saying, oh, so the frog means. Um, so the CEO of SLGG, first of all, it's a gaming company and the CEO worked for this thing called frog construction or something. So the frog relates to that. And the CEO of SLGG back in 1999, she worked at McDonald's on her LinkedIn. It says she worked at McDonald's. And so that McDonald's serves soft serve ice cream. She worked. So frog emoji, frog construction, ice cream emoji, McDonald's soft serve ice cream. Ryan Cohen is sending us this thing because he can't blatantly say it to pump it because that's illegal. So obviously, so the crowd, this was all over Twitter, all over the message boards. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to bet against that for sure. Uh, This is ridiculous. And the stock squeeze like kept going and all, it wasn't just squeeze. This is just momentum buyers, like nonstop. And like the stock went from two to like 11 bucks in like a couple of days. And I was trying to hold it, you know, with the... (laughs) It was terrible. It was one of my one of my first big losses. Uh, this was early on. So, you know, early on, I couldn't afford uh, big losses, but this was one. And I came back from it, you know, strong because I, I made improvements. I learned my lesson the hard way, never to go against the crowd like that, no matter what, even no matter how ridiculous it seems. But that mm-hmm. was the market. So so that's a sympathy play. That That's a sympathy play. It's So the sympathies never go as, as crazy as the head of the snake. <laughs> they have less... They have less firepower. So technically they're the easier ones, but at the same time, you still got to trade it. You know, you got to put in all, you got to put in all your effort to trade it the right way. Uh, I remember at the start of the GameStop squeeze, the reported short interest was over a hundred percent of the float. Uh, Can you explain to us uh, how is this possible? So first of all, I don't understand that completely, but that means that, you know, for, for, for what I understand is there's a lot of short sellers in there. I, so someone told me a while back, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it says like short seller uh, can count as 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 part of that. So like, I, I really don't understand. No, I, it's it's a it's a mind. But you know, when you see that kind of short interest, you want to stay away from it. And you know, so you had like um, a hedge fund. I think it was Melvin Capital. They were just too cocky and too you know, they they went all in. They blew up. You you short more shares than what's available out there. So I think. I think what it is, is that uh, brokers and short sellers and, you know, the, whoever's lending out the shares can lend it out before they reserve the share or find the, find the borrow. And then within two days, they have two days to actually find it. So they can lend out more than what what's actually available. And then after a couple of days or whenever they update that, it's going to force uh, cause forced buy-ins and the stock's going to squeeze. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, it's crazy. So it's it's, it's something... You know, it's like you don't really understand fully because like who knows what the clearing firms are doing or who knows what broker is doing that. Is it naked shorting? Like, what is it? So it's just a very confusing scenario. But it's just like you can never go all in no matter how confident you are. Or, you know, when you see a high short interest, it's it's usually you got to stay away. You got to be on guard. Excuse the last interruption here. This is Tessa. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you love the podcast, please give Chat with Traders the best review you can on whatever platform you're listening from. This will help us to keep the episodes coming. Also, if you haven't subscribed to our email list, please hop on to chatwithtraders.com and click on subscribe so we can keep you posted of information that may be of importance. 
Thank you. Now back to the chat with our guests. Mm-hmm. Uh, from your research, were the meme stocks an organized pump by a few instigators like you see in penny stocks? Or was it really the masses organically coming together to extract revenge on those evil hedge funds and market makers? You know, everybody needs a scapegoat, right? So whoever was really pulling the strings, no one really knows, but like is using the crowd as a as a scapegoat. Oh, yeah, let's put, you know, it's it's nice to believe that. But like in actuality, like what is it? You know, so there's, you know, in the market, we got nefarious players involved. So somebody probably orchestrated that and used the crowd as a, as an excuse, as a, you know, as a facade. And like people like to believe a story, you know, so so of course there, people are going to say, oh, down with with the man. I'm going to stick it to the man or whatever. Like they don't really understand what's going on. But, you know, some people really profited off that just by it was a big liquidation event. And as in during that period, people had like money from stimulus checks, from uh, unemployment, from all types of benefits and people staying at home. So this is like something for them to do. And every, and it's like money going from one hand to another. And it was it was orchestrated, in my opinion. You know, it's just like, yeah, I don't think it was uh, the little guy trying to beat the big guy. And like, yeah, that's just a story. But there was a there was another bigger bigger thing going on. Uh huh. I'd like to uh, transition to the topic of short squeezes. Um, what are the mechanics of short squeezes, and are the shorts really forced to cover, even when their position sizes are a small percentage of their entire portfolio and they have plenty of reserve cash on hand? Okay, that's a. There's several things that go on with short squeezes. So sometimes. You, you, you could have a, a lot of space in your account to absorb the squeeze and everything, but the broker calls back the shares. They, they close the position out on you because they don't like the risk. Let's say some of, there's several, so there's a lot of ways a short squeeze can happen, you know? So one way is the, is it the float. So the, the, the float that's traded, there's too many shorts in it. And then you have buyers that come in and buy as well. And it forces the stock to go up and the pain threshold of those short sellers causes them to, to get out of the trade and it, it just keeps going higher temporarily, like in a parabolic move. Um, now, brokers will do buy-ins. It, it, like, let's say they can do buy-ins whenever. So let's say if I'm short overnight a stock and everything is going good, it's, it's within my risk, it's everything. In the morning, if the if the broker wants, they can call back the shares as a buy-in. Let's say it's that the, the we have this thing called the T plus two. So, you know, they can lend out the shares and they have two days to find the share somewhere to cover the, the borrow. And sometimes they can't. So they they call they do buy-ins to make that to meet that requirement. So that's one way. And that can that it can ignite a squeeze depending on the the, the float, because the float is the, tied to dem- uh, supply and demand. So if the supply is low and the de- and the demand out supersedes that, you know, goes the demand is higher than the supply, it's gonna cause a squeeze. Then you have a buy-in from the broker that's going to cause more squeeze. And then let's say it's, it starts to reach, it starts to squeeze other short sellers and into their pain threshold or their stop loss, and, that, and it breaks out. And then you have momentum buyers coming in saying, oh, okay, it's a breakout. It broke out the daily resistance, whatever, and or whatever resistance level they're looking at. And then it just, they jump in and now it causes super squeeze. And the lower, we see a lot of these low floats, these micro floats that are less than a million less than 2 million, less than 3 million. Like I mentioned earlier, they're the ones that go insane. You know, they can go, I've seen them over the years. I've seen the biggest one I saw, I think it was HKD uh, went from like $10 to 2,500. That was last year. There was GameStop, but GameStop wasn't a micro float or a low float, but that one went, that one was the first one to have a lot of volume. Do you know the story behind HKD? I mean, what yeah. what triggered uh, that whole run there? I, I've never seen anything quite like it. And uh, were, did you or anyone else you know um, try to short HKD and were successful at being able to hold the shares and not being forced to buy back in? So see, HKD, from what I understand, all, all my colleagues and friends and uh, that are short seller traders or you know good traders in general, the conclusion is that it was impossible, pretty much impossible to win on it because it, to, if you hold it, you're going to have a buy-in from the broker. Uh, and the, the borrow fee rate, I was monitoring it the whole time. It was over a thousand percent. So even if you hold it overnight and the broker broker doesn't buy it in, you're still going to lose on the borrow cost because it's so expensive. 
And then on top of that, I found out uh, recently that there was ghost fees attached to it. So that when you close the position out, it didn't settle with the clearing firm or anything. So like it just kept the the, the fees just kept accumulating, you know. So these this is these are the risks with short selling. So HKD going over it from the beginning. So it is a Chinese stock. It was based out of the Cayman Islands. It had a parent company, AMTD, is listed on the New York. Both of them were listed on New York Stock Exchange, which from my experience, this was one of the first New York Stock Exchange stocks from my experience, my personal experience, that I've seen be a Chinese pump and dump. Because I, I was tracking and keeping tabs on all the Chinese pump and dumps over the course of like a year or two. I even have podcasts about it. I really was investigating it. I actually was planning a trip to go to the Cayman Islands and going there in person and exposing some. And uh, so they were all listed on the NASDAQ. HKD was the first one that popped up. I'm like, wow, this is a New York Stock Exchange one. Insane. So it was just thinly traded. Uh, The float was under a million. And it just kept going higher day by day. It will pull back a little bit, go higher. And I think, you know, some short sellers, I heard from my short seller friends, they they just were hitting it massive. You know, so short sellers, they get cocky, you know, because like shorting is a higher percentage winning strategy than, than longing. And that means that, you know, the confidence level of some short sellers with a lot of capital is it can get it can get ridiculous. So like some people are hitting this with size, even though they know it's a bad trade and it just kept going higher little by little. The spread was very wide. And then within a, a week or two, you see it at two thousand five hundred dollars. And no, I did not short it. I was watching it the whole time. There were, however, sympathy plays and uh, other Chinese uh, scam companies. Because, you know, of course, there's always going to be some sympathy. Someone's gonna, someone is, is, is like the typical person that, that buys a sympathy is like, oh, HKD, a Chinese company, Cayman Islands. I got to look at other Chinese companies that out of the Cayman Islands. Let me buy it. And there's really no reason to buy it other than it's Chinese co- HKDs went up so much. So, like, let's try another one. The, the, the momentum buyer buys that one. So there were some that were not as thinly traded that I could short, as well as HKD's parent company, AMTD which had a higher float. I forgot what the float was off the top of my head, but it was it was a decent amount float. I think it was at least 20 million or so, which gave me all the green lights to short it. And AMTD was the sympathy, the main sympathy from, uh, to HKD. And I was able to short that one. So yeah, I can recall that one. Um, but HK and AMTD, so when the float is bigger, the borrow fee, get there's less demand to short it, you know, because mm-hmm. like there, it can absorb, the float can absorb the demand uh, the supply is there to absorb the demand. So therefore, the short fee, borrow fee rates lower, the locate fees are lower. It's more manageable. So yeah, mm-hmm. I went after AMTD and uh, it's clear in the filings and everything. It, it says everything in plain sight. AMTD is a parent company. They had a, a diagram there that showed HKD and AMTD and some other companies that AMTD owns based out of Cayman Islands. It's ridiculous. So like anything that's Chinese out of the Cayman Islands is most likely a scam. It's 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 a shame though. Like I, you know, as much as I do well on these traders, like myself, do well on them. You know, it's just a shame that like you know I can always find something else to trade. I'll find another thing to trade, another instrument, another stock. I'll figure it out. I have confidence in my abilities. But like to to see these scams go through from China into the U.S. and take money because they're the ones really getting rich off this. You know, mm-hmm. so I yeah, just, I don't like seeing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, often when I uh, see stocks to short, uh, often um, the bulls argue that, uh, oh, well, the short interest is so high, it's going to squeeze and um, and the shorts are going to be forced to cover. But uh, do you know of any service that gives daily updates to the short interest and provides, say, a weighted average price that the shorts have shorted the stock? Because uh, on a particular day, if the shorts are forced to cover, I mean, how do we know that new shorts with deeper pockets don't come in the very same day or the next day? And so the bulls are uh, maybe falsely thinking that, um, oh, that the shorts are the same shorts and then they're bleeding every day rather than having new shorts come in to replace the old shorts. And therefore, uh, they're not as panicked by the stock price going up. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, so so there's just so many inefficiencies with the market. You know, it's uh, I always wondered why isn't like float updated all the time? And float is 
Load is really not updated that that well. However, there is a service called Dilution Tracker that started recently, like a month, a year and a half ago or so, and uh, they've cleaned up the float game. I, I think they're getting float data from a source that's like really that's more reliable than anything else out there. And they also have people, a team that calculates the float based off of the latest filings and the outstanding shares, and they really they really nerd out with that. So like they, they figure that out. However, yeah, the short interest, that's that's something that's lacking. Maybe in the near future, there's going to be a service similar that comes up come, like, to the illusion tracker that comes out and figures that out. However, my secret sauce, which is not going to be secret anymore after this podcast, uh, <laughs> I use uh, interactive brokers, the, the borrow fee rate as a way to reverse engineer the short interest. You know, so when the borrow fee rate increases an exponential amount. That means a demand for short sellers because the interactive brokers uh, data for that, it says on their website, that it's an aggregate from uh, a lot of different clearing firms. So if the clearing firms are lending out shorts and basing their borrow fees off of the demand of that and interactive brokers aggregates all that together and comes up with a borrow fee for that, that I think, in my opinion, and from my experience, it has been a, a reliable indicator up till now, up until there's something better because before we had this rush of new traders in the market, uh, hedge funds and stuff had access to this because they have a lot of money. They can afford all this crazy, sophisticated uh, data and stuff. But now with a lot of retail traders, as you can see, no one could see there in the podcast, but I have a big setup and I have a lot of tools that now retail short sellers like myself have access to. So in the future, yeah, I, I, I hope that there's better data for short sellers. Uh, to, you know, to get that short interest and instead of figuring it out, because like, you know, if, for example, right now, without the way that I'm doing it with the borrow fee rate and all that, I have to rely on the chart, the the candles, the one minute candles in the chart, whether how violent they go. So like if it go, if, if I see a parabolic action in the candles within a very short amount of time, that's indicating a squeeze and a squeeze of like, I have to imagine, okay. Who's getting squeezed on this? Is it a big short seller? Was there a, when I eyeball it with the volume candle, I see a 1 million share sell order uh, or a 1 million buy order that, that forced a parabolic action. I'm like, okay, that's probably not a long. That's probably a short that's forced out of it. I imagine of someone getting forced out or like, for example, in the afternoon and power hour, I know from my, from firsthand experience, brokers will give you a call and be like, hey, you got to, you know, you got to wire in some money or else we're going to close you out. They usually do that at 3 p.m. and an hour, an hour before the close and an hour after the close, certain brokers. Hmm. Now, they they will ask you to wire more money in only if your account is in the red. Uh, but if they request or if they demand a buy-in, uh, they make you buy it no matter what your account status is, right? So would that would these giant spikes be an indication more of a forced buy-in rather than um, somebody uh, having a margin call? Yes, exactly. So let's say uh, at one of those checkpoints, you see a big spike happen. I'm like, okay, so a short seller got blown out. That's what happened. That's not buyers coming in and buying it. That's a short seller got blown out. And that's the first of the first, that's the first domino usually. So now there's going to be a sequence of those because like once one that forces the price higher, and then who's who's next? You know, it's like that's the thing. So it's like reading the chart pattern, reading the volume, reading the tape, reading. So you're looking at the borrow fee rate percentage, looking at the short interest on Yahoo or whatever Wall Street Journal or whatever service you're using, because those the, the short interest is only updated the first of the month and the 15th of the month. So you got to like put the puzzle together. So trading now is is all about short selling is all about putting this puzzle and using this like imagining who's getting squeezed. Was there a big short seller in this low float stock? It doesn't take much to move these stocks if you're a big short seller. That's why, you know, I from I, I like to go for stocks that have a bigger float because then I don't have to worry about that as much. But yeah, it's about putting the puzzle together. And these days, the data and the tools is still, is still relatively new. You know, we're still in like this new wild frontier of like retail short sellers. We're still figuring it out because like think if you think about it, the whole di digital age started in the 2000 or so. And so it's been 23 years and only I would say the past five or five years or so have been the short selling world has been accessible to, to retail people, you know, like myself. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned some of the criteria that you use to uh, to short a stock. 
So what do you look for in your high probability setups? Uh, you've already picked out the scam stock. You've already checked out the float and the, and the borrow interest and all that stuff. What do you look for on the charts to trigger a, a short? And then when do you cover? Okay, so a few things. So I like to short sometimes, uh, for example, midday parabolic. Some, some days, some stocks, let's say over a stock that's trending down for the year. And I already know about it because I've shorted it throughout the year. I already know, okay, this stock IPO'd last year. It's coming up of a 180-day lockup expiration. It's borderline scam. Let's say it's it's a stock based out of the Cayman Islands. This happens a lot. So they have a 180-day lockup expiration. And then all of a sudden, midday, you get this big spike, like around 200 days. Uh, so 20 days after the 180-day lockup, it starts to spike big. And that's a combination of people that were short before because the stock was fading down for the 180 days for the most part it ipo'd and ever since then it's just fading down and so like i already you know so i would look to short that on um a significant move and for example i'll have some criteria to you know stocks will pop on my radar when they hit like 20 percent on the scanner and i won't short it but i'll keep an eye on it and now it's on my radar now i'm focused on it and then let's say if it starts to go higher midday like 40 percent 50 percent and the and the float is uh semi-diluted because of the, the 180 it's been 180 days so the insiders a lot sometimes they get out at 90 days so that's been diluted some more and then also there's some stock options and stuff involved in the filings you can see where they have exercise prices that more people got out, more insiders, so that the float is bigger than what it's bigger than what it was. That's like the sweet spot, like a 200 day or so. And the stock just goes up 50 to 100 percent for no reason intraday. And I'll look to short that intraday and I'll cover at the end of the day or something like that, because I don't want to hold it overnight. So what I've done, I just I, I take my gains intraday for the most part. Sometimes of the year, if I'm traveling or so, I will put on a swing, but um, a swing short. But for the most part, I'll cover them intraday. So that's one example. I look for the 180-day lockup expirations. Um, I like to read the news on biotechs, like on fluffy news, for example. If there's animal testing news or if there's like phase one and, you know, they have just like five or six patients they tested on, the stock goes over, let's say, 80% or so. I look to get to trade it because the biotechs, you know, they all need, for the most part, they all need cash. They don't have a product that they're making money off of. And, you know, so they need to pay the bills and they will, they have usually S3s, shelves ready to go, offerings ready to go, ATMs. And yeah, a lot of them have low insider, what no low institutional ownership. So like it's, uh, it's usually pretty clean fades for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, so do you ever go long any stock? Um, long. No, I, I have not. I have not gone long. So I, I, I have Apple in my IRA, I guess. Okay. <laughs> but right, no, right. I decided early on, I was just going to stick to shorting and that's it. I, I tried, you know, there's a couple longs I tried out here and there, uh, the past couple of years just to get my, I told myself last year, like on January 1st, that was one of my new year's resolutions. Like, you know, what? I'm going to go long. And I tried going long. I even forgot the ticker. I think my, my friend told me about it and I just got out. It was distracting me from shorting. So I just got out of it. Oh, <laughs> uh, great. Um, I'd like to uh, transition to uh, psychology and kind of to wrap things up. Uh, what do you struggle with the most in trading? What do I struggle with the most? I would say just being stubborn is something because, you know, um, with short selling. So one thing I early on in my career, I always knew I was a stubborn person and you know, holding on with short selling, a lot of times you'll get rewarded for holding something and being stubborn with it. So it's just something that uh, I've I've had to work on and you work on it through discipline and through, you know, just making set rules time. Like, for example, I'll give myself a deadline to hold a stock. OK, I'm not holding this stock overnight. I'm cutting this stock at this certain level, no matter what. I guess the, the main thing is, is, yeah, stubborn. I'm just a stubborn person in general. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. You know, for example, when I was in architecture, I would just, uh, I wouldn't go to sleep until the project was done. You know what I mean? That's a good way to be stubborn. Trading, I was, I'm going to read the book until it's done, you know, no matter how, how long it takes. It's good, good qualities to be stubborn with, but it's like when it comes to trading, it can, it can hurt you if you're in a trade and you're being too stubborn. Mm hmm. Um, just curious uh, if you had any desires to create or join a sort a short research group similar to Hindenburg Research, or are you busy enough and satisfied with your, you know, trading your own account? 
Um, I'm, I'm satisfied trading my own account and I already set up uh, a bunch of goals for myself. Um, and I'm on, I, I'm going with my, my plan, you know? So I have, um, a good friend of mine in, in white diamond research, and that's the one I aligned with to do the floor growth short report. So mm-hmm. white diamond research is one of the most reputable, uh, short selling firms. And yeah, that's, so I kind of work in a way as, as like a independent person, with white diamond and coming up with ideas, but yeah, uh, I guess I I've gone to the point in my career where I'm self-sufficient. I'm doing so well and achieving like my dreams. So I don't really feel, you know, that's not, I'm not really looking to do that. However, in the beginning of my career, I used to always imagine while I was studying the pump and dumps and seeing these reports out and being out of graduate school, I was like, man, what if one day I could work for, someone like it that does this research firm that would be cool that would be so cool and you know going and investigating companies and stuff and you know that was before and then fast forward i was able to do a lot of that on my own so i in a way i kind of achieved that that goal of mine but it's not never nothing's ever out of the question Uh uh-huh well david uh thanks for coming on uh chat with traders it's great to have you on the show thanks ian been a pleasure yeah Uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you Okay, they can get in touch with me through Twitter at reverse underscore long. Uh, also, uh, through my podcast, everything is on the YouTube page. There's like a little Discord group and stuff if you want to be part of that. Or, you know, it's it's just free to join, share. It's a community, but just of like-minded people. I'm easy to reach, easy to talk to, very approachable, I, I think. So, yeah, feel free to reach out and listen to the podcast. Yeah, for sure. I have the Friendly Bear podcast as well. Yes, I've listened to quite a few of your interviews and uh, uh, very informative, uh, definitely worth listening to. Thanks, Ian. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Thank you.